Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the program, we're talking to Professor Laura Robson. Laura, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. Laura Robson is Associate Professor of History at Portland State University. And her most recent book is States of Separation, Transfer, Partition, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, which came out with UC Press in 2017. We're recording on the Ottoman History Podcast mobile setup, uh, live from Neuchâtel in Switzerland, where we've been hosted by Jordi Tejel and his team uh, for a very fruitful workshop on the history of refugees in the Middle East, entitled Discourses on Refugees, Practices of Belonging. So in this episode, we're going to, uh, of course, discuss uh, some of the main arguments and contents of the book, States of Separation. Uh, And then I'm going to be asking Laura some specific questions I have pertaining to the Deporting Ottoman American series that many of you will be familiar with. You can find it on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. So Laura, to start, just tell us about States of Separation. What did you want to do with this book? Uh, What are you trying to say about the making of the modern Middle East? So the book came out of an archival discovery that I made when I was actually looking for something else entirely at the League of Nations Archives in Geneva where I discovered a series of documents relating to a plan that the League had put together in the late 1930s to remove the entire Assyrian community of Iraq to Brazil or British Guiana, which seemed like such an insane idea. And I thought, you know, it was a really interesting thing to think about how the League came to the conclusion that this kind of removal to a territory that was, you know, an essentially random choice would represent viable and defensible international policy. So the book kind of arose from that moment, and it explores regimes of transfer, forced migration, deportation, refugee resettlement in Iraq and Palestine and Syria during the interwar period. And what I'm hoping to do with it is really think about how international regimes produced particular kinds of nation states, um, which also produced particular kinds of people whose political identities lay outside those nation states or for which for whom there was no space in these nation states. And think about why they did that. So what were the purposes of producing those kinds of political identities? What happened to the people who had those identities imposed upon them? What kinds of states resulted? What kinds of post-colonial formations can we see resulting from those colonial era policies? Yeah. And of course, you know, you mentioned the League of Nations, and this is after the First World War. So we're talking about a really global process. Yes. However, I think you make an argument as well that this question is particularly relevant to the formation of the states of the modern Middle East, which are all taking shape at this time. Our listeners will probably remember an episode with Asla Uzsiz on the uh, Greek-Turkish population exchange, which was sort of the model of this... um, mantra that you got to keep people separated to keep the peace in the world. And so you see this being applied across all over contexts, and especially in your region of study. This is absolutely right that the Greek-Turkish exchange is a relevant kind of moment. Another thing that I wanted to do in terms of the case studies was bring Zionism into the mix and suggest that some of the same impulses that brought European Jews to Palestine during that same period in pursuit of a kind of ethno-national political identity, if not always an actual state in that period, 
are also visible in the experiences of other quote-unquote minority communities. And the ones I look at more particularly are the Assyrian community in Iraq and Armenian refugees in Syria. So I wanted to think about this, as you say, as a global moment, as a regional moment, as kind of an ideology of what was coming to be called internationalism, although I would argue that it's really more like renewed kinds of empire, and think about how those case studies fit together and what they can tell us about the emergence of modern national orders. I want to ask you more about the logic that's guiding uh, the policies you study. Uh, And we have to say, for the sake of historical context, that the British and the French are not entering into a region of the Middle East that is totally free of uh, ethnic conflict no, or course, yeah. you know, divisions, actually. Absolutely. That's the context that during the First World War so many of these things arose. Yet, of course, in your book, there's also the argument that some of the policies that were applied during this period um, would not necessarily uh, alleviate any of uh, the problems that the British and the French found on the ground. So, I mean, I'm curious to hear you say if you think that this was simply British and French colonialism operating through the League to do some pretty classic divide and rule, your standard imperialism, or if there's something a little bit different going on in this time. I think it's both. So. The Ottoman, the, the history of the late Ottoman period in the Arab provinces is an interesting one because we have, I think that there are new kinds of ethno national communal consciousness um, emerging across the late Ottoman world in the late 19th century. And that it takes a couple of forms. One is about the emergence of concepts of representation within the state, which kind of placed new political meanings on on identities that had previously been visible as social and economic categories, cultural categories, even sometimes legal categories, but not really political categories in quite the same way that we think of them now. As the Ottoman state moved into talking about representative government, even if not actually enacting it, that meant that communal identities like being Greek Orthodox or being Muslim, being Christian, being Jewish, you know, that these things take on a new valence in the context of, of domestic discussions of representation and access to the state. But I think, too, that we also have a longer history of um, relations between the Ottoman Empire and Europe that speaks to the imperial context of, of Britain and France as well, where throughout the 19th century, both British and French interests had identified Christian communities within the Ottoman sphere as kind of client populations, as potential proxies for commercial and political interests. And so that also contributed to kind of an increasing awareness of communal distinctions that had political implications for the late Ottoman um, administrations. And then, of course, we also have a much longer history of um, British and French engagement with concepts of ethnicity in the colonies in places like Algeria and India, where they had, you know, been interested in, as you say, kind of divide and rule tactics. So the kind of bloodshed that we see in the late Ottoman period in the Balkans, for instance, I would argue actually has quite a lot to do with European intervention and the way that they had kind of identified ethno-communal divisions as a mode of political and military intervention in that period. So it is both about Ottoman domestic politics and about imperial interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's an incredibly violent period. I would point out that it's 
actually not an incredibly violent period in the Arab provinces where we don't really see, we have faint echoes of some of mm-hmm. some of that bloodshed, but it's actually late Ottoman Palestine, for instance, is a fairly prosperous and calm sort of place. Um, so there's a real difference between the, the history of the eastern and western halves of the Ottoman state during that period. Right, and in many ways the resultant mandate states uh, in practice kind of resemble what the rest of the Ottoman Empire looked like in terms of this more uh, heterogeneous population, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional construction. Maybe to get into more concrete examples, let's return to the Assyrian case that you mentioned uh, in Iraq. First of all, please do explain for our listeners very briefly what we mean by Assyrian and who uh, are the people that this term refers to, uh, and then sort of maybe we can talk more about how this interwar period uh, impacted this community. So the word Assyrian refers to what are really kind of a conglomeration of different Christian communities in what are you know now scattered across several modern nation states, um, but roughly in the kind of Turkish, Iraqi, um, Iranian borderlands areas. And they had a position of some autonomy in the late Ottoman period, Um, These are spaces that are fairly remote from Ottoman centers of power. So even though they were incorporated into the Ottoman sphere, I think it's fair to say that they were operating, you know, essentially on their own in many instances. And then during the late stages of the First World War, in the context of military engagements in those borderlands, the British had brought a fairly large group of Assyrians from Hakiri and from from eastern and from from the Iranian borderland area into what would become the mandate state of Iraq into what they called Mesopotamia at the time as refugees so 30 to 40,000 people a fairly substantial community and i think it's important to point out that they're not the only assyrians in iraq right that we also have local communities chaldean communities and syriac speaking communities um, who were already there um, and part of the kind of local social and economic and political fabric of the place so it's quite it's it's quite a disparate group of people, but roughly we're talking about this Christian community that also represented a kind of um, semi-autonomous political entity um, during the late Ottoman time. And so you mentioned at first this seemingly far-fetched program to yeah. send mm-hmm. the Assyrians elsewhere, which if you look at what was being proposed during the 1920s and even before that period. Uh, it's not actually that far-fetched because people were always proposing uh, these kinds of things. And, um, you know, the idea of the minority community is crystallizing for the first time uh, in, in state practice and is really configured as a problem, a universal problem, in the way that, quote-unquote, minorities had posed a problem to specific states. So how did the British in Iraq handle this question? So I would argue that they really had to invent the Assyrians as a minority. Um, So they brought this refugee community into a camp called Bakuba, just north of Baghdad, initially in 1918. And then as the British were figuring out, there was a major revolt against British 
military occupation in Iraq in 1920. And so the British were figuring out what kind of political formulations would allow them to maintain an imperial hold over Iraqi territory with the minimum of cost, basically. And as part of this conversation, they were also trying to lay claim to the northern province of Mosul, which is an oil-rich province, which is something the British knew and were interested in developing, um, which was also a territory being claimed by Turkey at that time. So it took quite a long time for this to unfold, um, and it wasn't until 1925 that the question of who should get Mosul eventually went to the League of Nations. Um, And the British, in the meanwhile, in an effort to hold on to what was proving to be quite difficult territory, had turned the Assyrian refugee community into a military asset. They put together these, what were came to be called Assyrian levies. They were entirely Assyrian by the mid-1920s, who essentially operated as kind of crack troops, putting down both Arab and Kurdish revolts against the colonial state um, in the northern parts of Iraq. So relations had become hostile, I think it's fair to say, between the Assyrian refugees especially and local communities by the time this question of Mosul went to the League. And the British were able to make the case to the League of Nations that the Assyrians constituted what they were now calling a minority, which is a new word really in this post-war era. Um, who were Christian and needed to be protected from the Arab Iraqis um, as well, but more particularly from the Turks. So that was one of the main arguments they made to the League for including Mosul into British-controlled Iraq, that it would allow for a kind of maintenance of protection, (laughs) quote-unquote, over the Assyrians. Can I see if I got this right? Yeah. (laughs) So the British uh, have a refugee population uh, in Iraq that poses a uh, somewhat of a, a, a threat from the vantage point of governmentality because they're resistant um, to British uh, interference in their lives, let's say, simply put. So they become part of the British military apparatus that is actually yes. used to suppress some of the other groups that are resisting a British incursion. Uh, and then that results in hostility, which then justifies Britain saying that these people need to be protected because the other people here are hostile towards them. And so the presence of this minority then further justifies a territorial claim in northern Iraq, right. which is really all about oil. And yes. you can read about that elsewhere because, yeah, yeah. people know that's, people, that's not yeah. a secret to history that that's what Britain it's, was doing in Iraq. It's not. Yeah. So basically what the British did is they brought these refugees into Iraq, turned them into a military unit to oppose local populations, and then claimed that they needed British colonial control over the territory to keep these people, refugees, protected. This, this is slightly a side note, but I think it's an important thing to point out. In retrospect, many historians later on cast this as a kind of Christian-Muslim opposition. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really central to note that this hostility between the Assyrians and the local Arab and Kurdish communities was not because Assyrians were Christian. It was because they were operating as a military arm of the British colonial state. So I think that that's an important kind of corrective to make. It's also relevant that you know, one of the victims of this narrative is local Assyrian communities, indigenous Assyrian communities, who became kind of tarred with the same brush of colonial collaboration, even though they were not refugees and had been resident in the region for much longer than this refugee community had. So, um, you know, by the time we talk about removal, 
in the late 1930s, the British and the League are talking about removing everybody, not just the refugees, but the entirety of the Assyrian community. And for context, by the time they're talking about removal, Britain is actually no longer officially in control of Iraq. It's already been handed over to a monarchy part, partially, right? Right. So This the, happens fairly early. Yeah. So the British decided really as early as the late 1920s that the mandate in Iraq was too expensive and that they could arrange the same kind of beneficial economic relationship and control of the oil industry, crucially, mm-hmm. um, via a kind of pseudo-independence treaty. So they withdrew in 1932, which meant that the Assyrians lost their colonial patron, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the following year, in 1933, there was a massacre by the new Iraqi army of Assyrian villagers um, that was covered extensively in the international press and kind of gave rise to the idea that the the Syrian problem needed to be somehow dealt with. Um, So that was the context in which the League started to put together proposals for the removal of the community to somewhere else. And they you know, they, they wrote to, it's actually kind of amusing looking at the archives, they wrote to all the countries they could think of that they thought might have empty space, South Africa, Australia, even there are a couple of proposals for Suriname, for Timbuktu, you know, it was really a kind of mm. desperate casting of, um, of into the winds. Um, and they got potentially positive answers from the governments of British Guiana and Brazil and started to enter into negotiations for Assyrians to be essentially deported en masse to these other spaces halfway across the globe. It's a bit of a spoiler for our listeners, but how does that play out? It fails, largely. So the, the plan that went the furthest was with Brazil. The League had extend, engaged in extended negotiations over this. They had a space on a plantation that they were going to move the Assyrians to, um, who were essentially to serve as a source of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And then Brazil went through a massive anti-immigration protest, which was actually, I think, triggered by Japanese immigration um, of all things in in that period. And so the government had originally agreed to the Assyrian transfer proposal, but then backed away from that agreement once they faced this public reaction. Um, so it became kind of a, it's a trope in the Brazilian press for a little while um, that you can find, you know, newspaper articles and cartoons kind of protesting against um, Brazilian acceptance of Assyrian refugees, immigrants, migrants, um, under the this league scheme. So it fails. And in the end, the league decides instead to, on a much more modest transfer plan, to take a small number of, you know, probably something on the order of nine, 10,000 people, Assyrians, and move them into Syria, French mandate Syria, where Mm. they're used to settle the Jazeera territory that the French are having trouble holding on to. So equally instrumentalized in in that context. And of course, the, the population, the majority of the Assyrian population that remained in Iraq had to live with the legacy yeah. of these policies yes. and we saw that right up until like when the 2003 Absolutely. US invasion of Iraq destroyed the state um, the state that would protect such a minority to some extent uh, in Iraq yes you saw how that played out uh, for the Assyrian community yeah so on, on that note I do want to ask you a little bit about another case in the book which is sort of one of the main focuses of a lot of your research uh, which is the case of Mandate Palestine. Mm-hmm. And specifically, for our listeners, 
I'd like to sort of point out a strength of the work you're doing on on, on Palestine, which is to put it in a in more of a a global context and to situate it in uh, the context of many different places throughout the world that are experiencing similar processes. Israel and Palestine are often studied uh, as sort of exceptional, as sort of an exceptional case, probably the most well-studied case in the Middle East, but certainly one in which comparative uh, work um, has often been lacking, but has also often been fruitful. Uh, so set the stage for us for uh, that. That's, okay. That's also a British mandate, but a little bit different context than the Assyrians in Iraq, certainly. Yeah. So the early history of Zionism is an interesting counterpoint to this conversation about the kind of making of ethno-national citizenship, because it is an early example of the idea that removing a population from a territory and placing it somewhere else could result in a viable nation state or a national entity of some kind. So in the book, I actually look at an early example of this, which was a movement that we call territorialism. And that is the idea that European Jews, um, particularly Eastern Eastern European Jews, could be removed to a British colonial territory in East Africa. And this has become kind of known as the Uganda plan. Mm -hmm. um, And it was a, you know, a failed effort. But it did constitute a fairly serious endeavor on the part of both Zionist leaders, Herzl himself was interested in it, um, and the British colonial state who saw this kind of settler idea as a way to create a market in an under what they considered to be an underperforming corner of their empire mm-hmm. and also support the cause of Jewish nationalism. So I think that Zionism, there's an intellectual legacy of the idea of not just separatism, but removal that becomes relevant to other colonial projects later on. I also would argue that the British support for mass European Jewish immigration into Palestine, which was part of the terms of the mandate. So it's not just that the British sort of decided this would be a good policy, but that it became international law, became part of the textual documentation surrounding um, British control over Palestine. You know, that that provides a kind of model for the sorts of ethno-nationalisms that will be supported at the international level. So as we see the emergence of a kind of proto-state, a proto-Zionist state um, in Palestine during this period, you know, this is, it serves as both a model and a kind of cautionary tale, right, for other populations around the region. I think it continues to do that, frankly. I think that that model of kind of the ethnic nation state has had wider reverberations around the rest of the Middle East than we're often kind of willing to acknowledge. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, if we look at the case of a largely Jewish immigrant population in Palestine. Yeah. There, there were also, just as in the case of Assyrians, there were yes. a, a long-standing yes. uh, indigenous yeah, um, Jewish population, Mizrahi Jewish population uh, in that region. Um, but you see a lot of parallels with the Assyrian case. Mm. It turns out totally differently in terms mm. of the fact that we have a state of Israel today. And there are a lot of reasons for why that is. But what is the similarity there? I think the similarity is in the idea of populations that could be presented as ethno-national blocks operating as colonial clients. I think in the case of the Assyrians, this was in a way a much more reluctant relationship, right? That, 
they were refugees. The reason that it was possible to kind of draft Assyrians into this colonial military was because they had so few other options. And there was, as you point out, resistance to that initially. They were not interested in the project of moving to Iraq and kind of colonizing Mosul for it, for the sake of that project. It was it was a, a, a kind of happenstance. But I think they were instrumentalized by the British as kind of a way of holding on to control over the soil-rich territory in some of the same ways that the British imagined making use of Zionist settlers in Palestine. That this kind of, the idea of settler colonialism, of course, had been tried elsewhere. And there was an established colonial pattern of making use of settlers as proxies for colonial rule. In the case of Palestine, we're talking about an empire that has a lot of financial and military pressures on it, and so is very interested indeed in anything that it thinks will save it money, Mm -hmm. which is relevant for both the cases of Iraq and Palestine. And so the Zionist enterprise was largely um, self-supporting from the British perspective. They paid for their own schools and roads and police and security apparatus in many cases. And so I think this idea of kind of a client for whom it was possible to claim that you were essentially supporting a kind of minority nationalism rather than a colonial settler population um, represented a link between the two cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also represented a link to the League of Nations period. Absolutely. Uh, in which that is a much easier case to make to the international community. Not that the international community really mattered at the end of the day that much in terms of what was going on in empires, but the League of Nations is sort of the the first time in which, you know, all these different states in Europe are trying to uh, negotiate these things uh, together. Yeah, I really see the international history of this period as being a history of the translation of 19th century imperial practices into a rhetoric of 20th century nation statehood. And it's particularly evident in the Middle East, but I think it's happening in other places as well. And that the League became a venue for translating colonial and imperial ambitions into a language of nationalism. And so the use of terms like minority was, was you know, it became a very useful strategy mm-hmm. for British and French colonial powers in the Middle East and elsewhere to say, look, we're not in Iraq because we want the oil of Mosul. We're in Iraq because we're protecting this minority nation of the Assyrians. We're not in Palestine because we are greedy about taking over this territory that links to the Suez Canal to India, but rather we are engaged in the process of assisting this minority nation to create some kind of viable political entity. So it's a rhetorical device, and it's a device of legitimization of the colonial project. And I think that that is actually the story of the League in many ways. And do you see the you know what eventually happens to Palestinians today? I say today because it still, it still really yes, is absolutely. unresolved, but what happens to Palestinians uh, throughout the mandate period and into the creation of Israel as really a natural um, extension of that logic and strategy, sort of an outgrowth of the way in which um, the quote-unquote minority question was treated by the British and French under the League? Or is that the process gone awry? In other words, is this what we should have expected to happen? Or you know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough question. I mean, I think that I would argue sources from the league suggest that 
from the beginning of the mandate, there was this idea, and I don't mean to say that it was shared by everyone or that it was kind of, you know, an established point, um, but I think there was a general idea that gradually the Jewish community in Palestine would grow sufficiently large that they would operate as a majority, and that that was the moment at which it could become a state that was not a mandatory territory because it would have the upper hand over the indigenous population. And maybe some of them would stay as kind of, you know, not really citizens of the state, and others would go to other Arab territories, um, but that that was the kind of end game. Um, I think in terms of the British that, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and this is not to excuse these policies, I, but I think that it was very unclear to them what the kind of level of dispossession would be for the indigenous population. And that policy in Palestine was also based on, you know, 19th century ideas of, of racial hierarchy and that they never considered, you know, that they never really considered the Palestinian Arab population to have political rights at all and certainly not national rights in the sense that they uh, they acknowledged um, for European Jewish settlers. So I don't think it's inevitable, but I do think um, this also relates to the question of partition, right? Because I do think it's a natural consequence of the interwar commitment to the idea of separating populations physically and geographically, that these kinds of pluralistic states that had marked the region prior to mandatory rule were non-viable in the modern era. And so once you have that premise in place, there are going to be winners and losers, right? And the Middle East is not the only place in the world where we can see that process unfolding. So it's a particularly dramatic example, but I do think it's the logical consequence of some of these principles of ethno-nationalism, mm -hmm. of separation, of partition, of you know borders um, that we can see emerging as a global principle in that in, in the interwar period. Yeah, and in our conversation with Asla Ussiz again on the Greek-Turkish population exchange and its legacy, she refers to this as a segregationist logic. Yeah, that I actually think that's right. is even more operative in the post-World War II period. Absolutely, is what she was arguing that this is kind of like it's a kind of interesting uh, argument that this isn't the. Um, it's, a much, it's as much about the emergence of the post-World War II liberal nation-state yeah. order as it was the last gasps of the old Im imperialism. So it's... I couldn't agree more. In fact, I would argue that the principle of ethnic separation is, is still, it's one of the go-to quote-unquote solutions when people talk, for instance, about the current war in Syria Absolutely. or the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. I mean, how many times have we read you know, Tom Friedman proposing the partition of Iraq into ethnic enclaves or the partition of Syria or the redrawing of borders as if as if it's the borders that are the problem, right? And I think it's interesting, too, because theoretically the idea of forced, forcible transfer was outlawed after the Second World War, but it continued to be operational in all kinds of ways. You could make the argument that Dayton Accords that ended the war in Bosnia were based on exactly the same principle. Mm -hmm. So it has continued to be a tool for internationalists, for mm -hmm. neo-imperial powers, you know, for the global system of nation states, I think we are very far from being finished with it. Um, right. Yeah. And because the uh, Middle East is so central to this story, it's really also yeah. an argument for the ways in which the Middle East isn't this weird exception, ridden with conflict, 
you know, on the global stage, but really it's an expression of the uh, precise forces and ideas that have been shaping uh, the, ru- the world really since that post-World War I period at the very least. Yeah. Um, and I want to spend the last few minutes of our conversation talking about another topic that naturally arises out of this. We talked about sort of dividing communities and, of course, dividing territory, uh, this whole separation aspect, uh, and the uh, ideas of transfer of populations that always came with it, both proposed and, in some cases, real transfers that happened either uh, by law, by legal means, or uh, by de facto means. The other uh, phenomenon that sort of arises in this period and sort of becomes a major concern of the UN that inherits the legacy of the League of Nations is, of course, the issue of statelessness. Mm-hmm. People who do not have states uh, do not have nationalities. And, of course, that poses numerous problems in, in the modern world in terms of moving around and having political representation. And we don't really have to explain why it's... statelessness puts people in a difficult situation here. But what is statelessness? It's a new concept, obviously. It is a new concept. It doesn't apply to all all of history in the same way. No, in fact, I mean, you could argue it's sort of a new phenomenon, right? In some respects, Will Hanley, the historian Will Hanley, has an article where he makes the comment that statelessness was a relatively normal circumstance in in the pre 20th century world in Europe as well as elsewhere. Statelessness is the condition of not having a nationality, um, not being able to make claims on any state as a national of that state. I think that one of the things that happens in the post-war, post-Second World War period that originates in the interwar period is that internationalism as a phenomenon, by which we mostly mean these international organizations like the League and the UN, commit themselves to a world of nation states. And and they do that very explicitly. So the UN Declaration on Human Rights posits that everyone has the right to a nationality. This is something that would have been unimaginable a century earlier, but it clearly results from the political context and landscape of the interwar period, where, as Hannah Arendt pointed out very trenchantly, it is the right to have rights is located in your possession of citizenship, right? That is, you can't access rights except through a claim of being a citizen of a state. So there are a lot of issues with this, naturally, not least of which is that states have widely varying capacities to actually offer those benefits to their citizens, and that the stateless then are left kind of out of the equation of human rights if they don't have a state to make to which they can make those, those kinds of claims. The UN in the post-war period engaged in a number of schemes of resettlement that were based on this nation-state principle, and I think the best known and probably most emblematic of that is that the Jews, European Jews in quote-unquote DP camps in Europe um, for years after the war, right, this took forever to iron out, were mostly sent to Israel. And part of that was about the reification of the idea of ethnic nationhood as the primary basis for the post-Second World War global order. So I think it's another it's another legacy of this period of the idea of kind of separate, insular, enclosed, ethnic, ethnically-based national identities for every population around the world. Is it accurate to say that there are actually more stateless people today than ever in history? Or, as we said, it's a recent history of statelessness as an official concept. But Yeah, I think that's 
hard to say because it depends on what we mean by being able to make a claim on a state, mm-hmm. right? Um, the kinds of the kinds of citizenship claims that people make on states now were also not really imaginable prior to prior to the First World War, certainly. So I think statelessness is a production of the nation state system. So I'm not even sure I'm not even sure we can really make comparisons to the kind of political belonging that people had prior mm-hmm. to the emergence of that system, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, just in terms of raw numbers, the UN has been concerned with statelessness for over half a century. Yeah. Whether or not the UN is really conscious of the fact of, of what precisely caused the problem of statelessness, which we can trace to the simple fact that many nation states were created, but not everyone who lived in them was originally seen uh, as being a citizen. That's sort of important, an important part of the problem. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been recognized for many decades as a problem, and yet I feel like there's still a lot of stateless people. There are definitely a lot of stateless people. <laughs> um, the UN, just a couple of years ago, put together a plan to end statelessness, which is um, ridiculously utopian in its vision. Not to be too cynical about the internationalist project, but I would point out that actually just as refugees were useful to the League's internationalist slash imperialist project in the 1920s and 30s, refugees and stateless people have been an important reason for being for the United Nations in the post-war period. The UN can make the argument that it is the only institution that can deal with stateless people and with refugees. It gives it a, a rationale. And I think it employs a lot of people. It is a, I, th- I don't think it's too much to suggest that there's a kind of industrial complex around refugee aid and activism and institutionalization. And I'm not suggesting that the UN isn't interested in, pro- in solving the problem of statelessness, but I think that as an institution, its very existence is wrapped up in the assumption that there will be stateless populations somewhere um, for whom the UN can operate as a kind of umbrella organization. So I don't know. I'm not, I guess I'm not entirely convinced that the UN really has an interest in ending statelessness, even if it had the capacity to do that. And that maybe what we should really be thinking about in policy terms are other ways to access rights that don't, in fact, involve moving through state authorities. Well, it's, it's a very important point, uh, and it's particularly interesting to reflect on. As we said, we're recording at University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland, and sort of Switzerland was the epicenter of the League of Nations when it was created, and one of the first things the League was trying to do was to, you know, through this whole non-send program to give passports to people who didn't have states, precisely to step into that role as being the state for the stateless in a way, the person Mm -hmm. who would stamp the passport for the people who had been um, thrown out of these uh, emergent nation states, to see that it what has resulted in as arguably the perpetuation uh, of this issue uh, is really, it's a dark irony. It is, it is. And I think we need to acknowledge the origins of these kinds of international authorities. You know, that there there are many ways in which they, they have searched, they have had to search for a role for themselves. And in some cases that has involved establishing a kind of permanency to the problems that they are purporting to be trying to solve. 
Well, we've certainly thrown a, a lot of punches in this interview, Laura. Uh, we could talk more about this, but I think we can wrap up the interview here. Of course, our listeners are welcome to read your book, States of Separation. came out from UC Press. It's uh, fairly reasonably priced, so it's uh, worth picking up for those who have the opportunity to do so. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I want to thank our listeners also for tuning in. Remind you to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We've got plenty of episodes related to today's conversation, but we've also got that series, Deporting Ottoman Americans, in which we look at the lives of people born in the Ottoman Empire who, for various reasons, were ordered to be deported from the U.S. during the 1930s. It connects well with this discussion. You'll be hearing clips of Laura Robson in that series, as well as clips of many other scholars who study issues of migration, uh, international law, and of course our standard issues of race, gender, and class on Ottoman History Podcast. That's all for this episode. Thanks again for tuning in and join us next time.